Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll try to keep this under 80 minutes if you listened to the podcast last week. It's really two sermons in one, as my fellow elders helped me realize. So today should be part two of the sermon on rebuke, um, but we'll move forward. God, in his great kindness, uh, giving me uh, some time to rest. My first Sunday back was leading worship, which was just weird, and but delightful, and th- I'm thankful for that. And then the second week was rebuke. <clears throat> this week, if you haven't picked up on a theme yet, we're preaching on money. Uh, so come back from a time of rest, preach on rebuke, preach on money. Next week, we're going to talk about the stewardship of time. Um, this week is the stewardship of financial resources. Next week will be the stewardship of time. So, um, <clears throat> welcome back to me. Let's read verse 6 of chapter 9. Excuse me. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, as we talk about the, the subject of not just money, but of generosity, may we, may we be captured by your generosity. Father, for your glory and our good. Amen. I want to start here. As we've been talking through this series on God's streams of grace, we've talked about this idea we cannot bend God's arm to give us grace. We cannot force His hand, as many teach, particularly people on television, teach this idea if you say the right words, the right combination of the right words, have enough faith, so on and so forth, that you can actually bend or twist God's arm to give you something that you want or to give you grace. That's just foolishness. Far from the Scriptures, we cannot do that. God is sovereign. We are not. We submit to Him. He reigns and rules over us. God gives, oftentimes, even when we don't deserve it, right? Arguably, we never deserve it, except for by the payment and deservedness of Jesus Christ Himself who rests upon his people. So we cannot twist God's arm, but nevertheless, we do see in Scripture, in the Scriptures, this clear uh, idea that God has promised that his blessings and his grace flow more often, more prominently, in certain streams. We talked about how the stream of his voice, primarily his word, that that that, if we would give ourselves to hearing his voice, primarily through his word, that God has promised that his grace would flow. We don't know to what measure, 
for different people in different seasons, different times. It looks differently, but nevertheless, God has promised that his blessing resides there. His grace resides as we give ourselves to hearing his voice. Same thing about his ear, the idea of praying, that we, we have the ear of the creator of the universe, the one who designed our redemption, paid the price for our sins, that we have his ear and that there is grace to be had if we would place ourselves in that stream. And then the third one being fellowship, community of the saints, where we live, as we talked about last week, even in the midst of rebuke, that there is a grace to be had in the idea of rebuke that comes largely through the body of Christ. But now, this week and next week, we're going to talk about the idea of resources that affect or impact how, when, and to what extent we place ourselves in the streams of God's grace. There are resources that affect the placing of ourselves. You've heard the Bible say, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but where your treasure is, there your heart is. Another way to think about it is where you spend your time, there your heart is. How you spend your two primary resources. So think about it that way. Money and time are two of our primary, our biggest, our most crucial resources. And how you spend those resources of time and money directly impacts the extent to which you place yourself in God's streams of grace. A couple examples. If you spend God's money chasing after comfort things that bring comfort, that lower stress, then comfort is what you value. But if you spend your money chasing after understanding and hearing God's voice, then it's His voice that you value. If you spend your time chasing after arranging the perfect schedule, then control of your schedule is what you value. But if you spend time chasing after deep fellowship and rich community, then that is what you value. Again, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You see, how you spend, how I spend God's resources directly impacts how close to God's streams of grace you and I are placing ourselves. There's no way around this. You don't get to God's streams of grace by spending your time doing something that's not. You don't Place yourself closer to God's streams of grace by, lie, by laying your treasure up someplace else. It's very practical. You put your treasure next to the streams of grace, and grace will be yours. Again, though, we cannot twist God's arm to make His grace ours And we can do nothing to earn His grace. That's the very definition of grace. We do not deserve it. However, again, He calls us to place ourselves near these streams. Now I get it. Sometimes He graces us even when we are stubborn and don't want to place ourselves near. Right? Misuse of money, misuse of time, and yet it still seems as though maybe God is blessing us in ways that we clearly don't deserve. I also do want to give you a warning, though, because as we talk about resources, God, we could be mishandling His resources, clearly, and then see, or maybe even mistake, God's grace to us as being grace. 
it could be that God is giving us over to something. So that feels like blessing. It feels like prospering. But maybe it's God giving us over to what our hearts desire that are not Him. So I just want to be careful that we don't think that prosperity is necessarily God's blessing. Or that if you're talking about the resource of time, that just because I'm productive doesn't mean that that's God's blessing. That could be like Ecclesiastes, God giving you over to pursue the end of that. So it feels pleasurable for a moment. It feels right. It feels like God's blessing for a moment when it's actually just something to distract you from worshiping the true and living God. Same thing in our finances. I think you go, well, how, how do I, I don't, this is kind of a side topic, I don't want to go here for too long, but, well, how do I know? How do I know? Well, I think, spend time reflecting, am I walking in honorable ways before the Lord with my resources, time, money, so on and so forth? You ask people in the body, people that are close to you in the body to say, hey, I'm experiencing some blessing here, I think it's blessing, can you help me discern, is it? Okay, enough of that. Now, as we talk about the grace of giving, I want to set kind of a framework here for us. As we talk about the grace of giving, our generosity, I'm going to be talking largely about the broad topic of generosity with God's money. Generosity with God's money. That's the broad topic. Now, as a practical outworking of being generous with God's money is how generosity relates to the church. Tithing, right? The, the, that word. Offerings, tithing, those words. That's a practical outworking. So here's what I want you to do. Don't limit this conversation about generosity to just tithing. But it most certainly includes tithing. I would argue it even starts there. Our generosity starts there. So here's my question. Do you spend God's resources to place yourself near God's streams of grace? That's the question I want you to ask. That's the the big question I want you to walk away having thought about and continue to think about this morning. Do you spend God's resources to further place yourself near God's streams of grace? First thing from this passage and we're going to be mostly in 2 Corinthians. We'll be a little in a few other places as well, but mostly in 2 Corinthians. First thought is this. Giving is not enough. How we give matters too. Giving is not enough. How we give matters too. Second Corinthians 9, 7 says this, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. When you give, do you give cheerfully? When you gave a few moments ago or when you send your check through the mail, when you hit submit on your online bill pay, do you hit submit cheerfully? God loves a cheerful giver. And we know that the key, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but 
the key to Christian generosity is Christ himself. The key to Christian generosity is Christ himself, our greatest treasure. He demonstrated the ultimate act of generosity in coming to buy us back. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So if Jesus is in us, then such open-handedness will be true of us in increasing measure. Meaning the, the less we will hold so tight to our things. I was telling someone the other day, out of all the issues of, of uh, counseling that I've worked through over the years, I cannot remember a single person walking into my office and saying, Pastor Matt, I need help with greed. Would you help me with greed? I'm greedy. And yet, all of us struggle with greed to some extent or another. But if Jesus is in us, then such open-handedness, like loosening the grip from our resources, will be true of us in increasing measure. And the deeper, I like David Mathis says, the deeper the roots of the gospel into our souls, the looser our grip, our grasp on our goods. Generosity is one of the great evidences of truly being a Christian. Jesus even reminds us in Acts 20 that greed leads to destruction, but generosity leads to joy. Gen- greed leads to destruction, but generosity leads to joy. And yet none of us struggle with greed, right? Now let's talk about what Paul is saying what Paul is not saying in this passage, this verse. Well, Paul is not saying, let's talk about that first. He uses these phrases here, as he has decided. And the other phrase, not reluctantly or under compulsion. As he has decided, or not reluctantly or under compulsion. Let me tell you quickly, Paul is not saying that we get to choose the amount we give without regard to anything other than our personal desires. Just make sure that's clear. In case you were interpreting that passage that way, I get to give whatever I desire. Our desires are never left up to just us to decide or us to wield and move around. That's never the way our desires are work. Our desires are to be formed, transformed by the gospel. So Paul is not saying we get to choose the amount we give without regard to anything other than our personal desires. That's not what he means when he says, as he has decided. Yes, we get to choose. There is a a free will aspect here, but our choosing should be in line with God's desires. I think that's clearly implied in the text. I mean, you read the rest of the Bible, I think it would support that. The next phrase, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Paul is not saying, don't ever give anything if you feel compelled to do it. Or don't 
ever give anything if you are reluctant in your giving. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, give with joy. Be cheerful in giving. You should want to give. Be so walking in the Spirit that you are giving generously with cheerfulness. Listen, nowhere in the Scriptures is there this measure of, well, if my heart's not in it, I don't need to do the physical action. That's not the Scriptures. The Scriptures never make this argument. It's actually quite the opposite way around. It is, do the action... Whether your heart is there or not, because that is obedience. And if your heart is far from it, now repent and walk in repentance for where your heart was not at. So if you don't have a cheerful heart, you should still give, and then you should repent for your lack of a generous and cheerful heart. It's like, well, I don't... I'm not really loving my wife this evening, so I'm not going to help with the dishes. I'm not going to take care of the kids. I'm not going to do any of these things, right? Because, so, because, my heart, because I'm going to do it reluctantly or under compulsion, I shouldn't do it, right? Okay, same thing applies to money and giving. So let me ask this question then. Are we compelled towards certain numbers of giving by the Scriptures? Are we compelled to do that. Again, are deciding what to give. This, as he has decided, should be joyfully guided by the Scriptures. Should be joyfully guided by the Scriptures. Now, I know. Let's, let's talk about a little bit of maybe what you guys, some of you grew up believing or maybe even currently believe. And we'll see what the Scriptures have to say. Let me give a couple examples. I, I know some of you have grown up in churches that taught you give 10%, right? And then when the Lottie Moon offering came around or you could give to this missionary or this building project, you throw a few pennies that way, right? Give 10%, and then as long as you're doing that, I'm good to go. And as long as I throw a few dollars when that special guest preacher comes for a love offering or such. Some of you grew up or are currently what I would call free will givers. I'm not calling you grace givers, because we're going to define that later. Free will givers. I'm going to give whatever fits my budget best because I'm not under the law. I'm going to give whatever fits my budget best because I'm not under the law. And then maybe a third category of people, I want to make sure everyone is equally feels a part of this conversation, Maybe you're just like new to this, and you're like going, I like giving, and I just never even thought about it. Maybe it's not crossed my mind. I want to be generous to other people, and how does the church fit into that, and all this stuff, and, and you're just kind of going, I, I just, I'm not doing necessarily one thing or something else because I have a conviction this way or that. I just, just, just help me. Help me think through this. So, the Old Testament teaches, this is clear. They read books like Malachi. The Old Testament teaches that we must give 10% back to the local storehouse. The idea is the church in kind of in our common vernacular. I don't have time to draw all of this out, but, but many churches argue, though, that this is just simply legalistic. 
That's the Old Testament. We're under the New. That's legalistic to say we must give 10% to the church. It's legalistic. We're not under the law anymore. We are grace givers, or so they typically will call themselves. But listen, anything, anything can be legalistic. Anything can become self-righteous or a means of self-righteousness. Anything can. Church attendance, Bible reading, prayer, eating, drinking. Like what Randy Alcorn says, there is nothing in life that can't be corrupted by legalism. So we just throw those things out the door? Like we just throw 10%, that idea, out the window because it can be legalistic? We just throw church attendance out the door because... I could be legal. I mean, some do. I mean, that's, that's really the, if you're going to be consistent, then you need to be just all willy-nilly with church attendance and with reading your scriptures, which is interesting because it does tend to work itself out that way. So the solution is not to stop going to church, stop reading our Bibles. It's important for us to realize that there is nothing that is inherently legalistic about the idea of the Old Testament tithe. Now, I want us to understand tithing a little bit more. Again, I don't have time to go into all of this, but I need to understand tithing in the Old Testament. The Israelites gave three different tithes. They equaled roughly 23% of their income. 23%. Do you hear me? Not 10. 23. And one of those tithes particularly supported the religious leaders. Something believers are told to do in the New Testament as well. Galatians 6.6 Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Let me quote to you Randy Alcorn here. In contrast, the Israelites were commanded to give 10% to the Levites, the spiritual leaders, for their spiritual leadership. The average giving of American Christians to support their churches spiritual leaders, missions work, and everything else, so not just the Levites, not just the spiritual, but everything, totals about 2.5% of their income. 2.5, now, that's a, that's a broad stroke on the evangelical plane, I'm sure. But just take that number with me for a second. This means that the Israelites were four times more responsive to the law of Moses than the average American Christian is to the grace of Jesus Christ. That's insane. And heartbreaking. Alcorn says this, the quote, I only believe in grace-giving claim rings hollow if it suggests that God actually expects less of New Covenant Christians than Old Covenant people and less of today's wealthy church members than yesterday's poor Israelites. He says this, it's an insult to apply the term grace to this radical lowering of standards. 
When you consider that New Testament believers understand the redemptive work of Christ and have the indwelling Spirit of God, the irony becomes even sharper. Let me give, uh, in the spirit of last week's sermon, a gentle rebuke, okay? Obviously, we don't know as a church what, what you all make, so on and so forth. Guesstimates can be made, but it appears, so I'm going to say this loosely, it appears that roughly 55% of our congregation shares at least 10% of their income with their church. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Now, the, the problem, though, is the 45%. I mean, really, you've got to understand, if this was 90% of our congregation, then praise God, then there would still be the 10%. Let me ask you this. What do you think this says in general about what we value as a congregation? If where our treasure is, there our hearts are. What does that say? What does it tell you about whether we want to be close to God's streams of grace or not? We've already talked about over this whole series about God's voice, God's ear, fellowship, and where does majority of that take place? Where is majority of that spurred and empowered, like brought about and taught? And it's through God's church, you know, the thing that Jesus died for. And the local expression of that church, the place where you enjoy it primarily. Let me put it a different way. 1 Corinthians 9, 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So here's the question. Are you sowing bountifully into your spiritual teaching and exercise? Are you sowing, let me put it in very clear and explicit terms to, to use the, what we learned last week about rebuke. Be clear and specific. Are you sowing bountifully into this place? Now, the, the principle applies beyond this. You sow bountifully into gospel relationships, and Lord willing, will reap bountifully in those relationships, lost people, and safe, so on and so forth. But it's also true here. Are you sowing bountifully into this place? You see, we need to be pro-grace and anti-legalism. Absolutely, I agree with you 100%. But we also must be in favor of spiritual disciplines that can launch people into a life of consistent obedience. Listen, just, just an observation from my experience, for what it's worth. I've only met a few people, like meaning one or two, so maybe a couple, who believe in grace giving and give more than 10%. Now, there could be some that I interact with, maybe even some of you that I just don't know. And if that's you, then praise God, the Lord knows. 
Listen, the 10% tithe, I, I like how Randy Alcorn talks about the 10% tithe. It's like training wheels. It's like training wheels for my children. I was, I was thinking about this with, with, uh, with Silas right now. He's got training wheels on his bike, and we're talking about taking them off. But he's got training wheels on there. Let me ask you this question. With him riding his bike with training wheels, is that the best my son will ever do at riding the bike? I mean, Lord willing, no. He'll move beyond that, where he doesn't need the training wheels, right? Listen, so listen, if you're giving 12, 13, 15, 20, 30, 40%, then sure, you don't even need to think about tithing. Put the training wheels in the closet. Sarah and I were talking about this yesterday in terms of other spiritual disciplines. Like the spiritual discipline of waking up every morning and reading the Bible, whether that's for two minutes or two hours, waking up, reading the Bible, the discipline of that. Does it feel like sometimes you have training wheels on? Yes. Why? Probably because you need them. But listen, when you get to the point where you go, I can't live without the Word of God, without the breath of God being blown into my soul through His speaking in His Word, then you don't need the training wheels. Why? Because you're just going to do it. Because you know you can't live without it. It's the same thing on tithing. When, 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 when your generosity becomes the driving force when it comes to God's money that he's given you to manage, then you won't need the 10% tithing training wheels. Jesus, I think, affirms the tithe as a starting point of faithfulness. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. <laughs> Anyways, uh, sorry. There's another conversation going on in my head. Like, I just love when Jesus speaks so clearly. I mean, he does all the time. So maybe it's just his brashness here that I am appreciating. But let me read to you what Randy Alcorn says again. This is so helpful. It isn't that the floor or the, the lower end of the expectation, it isn't that the floor of the tithe is made invalid under the new covenant, but simply that the ceiling of Christian giving goes far above it. When Jesus told the disciples to go the second mile, he assumed they had already gone the first. A couple quick questions, kind of like a FAQ section. What if I can't afford to tithe? Would you die if you lost 10% of your income right now? Would you die? Would you die? Listen, in the Old Testament, God promised to provide for those who gave the tithe. Isn't it reasonable then to expect God to empower you to get by on 90% instead of 100? That he would empower you to make the wise decisions to get there. Another question. What do I tithe on? 
I think the principle is God's gracious increase. How has God increased your possessions through the labor of your hands, your mind, so on and so forth? The total that you are given for your increase. Um, think about gross income. But also, I want to challenge you on this. What about other non, like it's not in the dollar section of your check, but it comes in the form of medical insurance. Let's say your employer increases you by a thousand dollars a month worth of medical insurance. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? That's an increase. It's just instead of them giving you a thousand dollars for you to go do whatever the, you want to do with, they give you $1,000 to pay for your medical insurance. Now, if you don't need that medical insurance, then just give it up. And you can have $1,000. It would be in your pocket. But you're being increased. So the same thing would be like, and I know you're like, oh, Matt, you're being legalistic. What about, so you get paid time off. Think about this with me for a second. Now, I think in wise application here, you take your paid time off, your increase doesn't go up. But let's say at the end of the year, you don't take your paid time off and you have to cash it out. Have you been increased now? You have extra resources. You were given more for your labors. Then yeah, that should be a part of your increase. Listen, I'm not... I don't think we're being legalistic. Remember, they gave 23% in response to the law of Moses. We have the grace of Jesus Christ. So what do I tithe on? God's gracious increase. <clears throat> I want to close out by giving you five principles of financial stewardship. Five principles. I, I think we've kind of laid the foundation for this idea of what am I to be giving? How do I, what do I give on? And the importance of it, and so on and so forth. Five principles of financial stewardship or financial generosity, so on and so forth. A few of these I want to take from David Mathis in his book. This is where we're going to kind of jump around a little bit more than this Second Corinthians passage. The first one is this, money is a tool. Money is a tool. Money itself is not an evil. Money itself is not an evil. And just because someone has nice things doesn't mean that they're spending their money wrongly. Money itself is not an evil. 1 Timothy 6, 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, and plunge, deep, and plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's pretty clear, right? It's not the money that's evil, it's the desire to be rich. It plunges people, not just into inconveniences, but into ruin and destruction. 
It's the desire to be rich, the love of money. It is this craving in our hearts which is so dangerous. Now, re- re- listen, you got this craving to be rich. It might not be that you just want to take that money and go buy a bunch of things. Like you want to go buy a Maserati or you want to go buy a big expensive house. Or It may not be the case. It might be that you want to get that student loan paid down really quickly. Maybe that you want to feel the comfort of having wealth sitting in your bank account. This desire to be rich, to feel rich, to feel wealthy, to feel like I am sufficient. So the problem isn't money, it's our hearts. The issue is the orientation of our hearts. I think this will help. Remember the the idea of the put on and put off, right? You should put on and put off from Ephesians. Ephesians 4.28. Read this with me. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now this verse is, and go read it, go read it for yourself. This verse is in the middle of a broader conversation about relationships right here in the midst of Ephesians. Paul is talking about being members of one body, like a unity in the body, and then he talks about the practical applications of what it means to be members in the body and be unified in the body. And Paul is saying, because of the broader context, Paul is saying, how can you tell when people are loving people? How can you tell when someone is loving the people in the body particularly? Another way you can ask a question, or another question to ask about this is, How can you tell when someone stops being a thief? Put on, put off, right? Put off, put on. How can you tell when someone stops being a thief? Is it the moment they stop stealing something? So you walk into the convenience store, you take something that's not yours, but you're done taking it, so now you're no longer a thief. So is it the moment you promise to stop taking things that aren't yours? Is that the moment you stop being a thief? Is it the moment you stop stealing and get a job? Is that the moment you stop being a thief? Not according to Ephesians 4. It's after they stop stealing, get a job, and start being generous. Put off. Put on. Paul's point is if you're not using money as a tool for generosity, then you're a thief. But if you love people, because you've been loved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then money will be a tool for generosity. Money is a tool. Number two, how we use money reveals our hearts. We've said as much already But let's look at it again. How we use money reveals our hearts. Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now these are generalizations, but we talk a lot about, as a church, about source idols. Like where, what is the idolatry that's that's rooted deeply inside? I mean, where most likely all are at least majority of our sins come from when we're something that we love and treasure and 
Let me give you kind of the example of how source idolatries, like source idols spend money, okay? If you spend money on new gadgets, toys, and investments on your hobbies and other distractions from day-to-day life, then your idolatry is probably comfort. So a comfort, someone who struggles with worshiping comfort in the stress-free life is going to spend money on gadgets and hobbies and so on and so forth to distract them from day-to-day life. If you know where every penny goes, then we'll look down on those who don't, and you're always anxious about money. Do I make enough? Am I saving enough? Your heart is probably in control or mastery, like you're worshiping having mastery over your finances. If you spend your money in a competitive way, using your money to come out on top or to be perceived as victorious with your finances, your heart is in having power and influence. Lastly, if you spend money trying to win another's affections, your heart is in having approval. Just to give you that example, because this is very, very practical, where your money is or your heart is. Okay, well, then what's that translate for me? What's that look like? So, like, to, to, to be honest and transparent, for me, it's the power and influence thing. So, I don't really care about all of my finances looking perfectly, so long as they look good enough to make other people think highly of me, to think well enough of me. So, that's where, for me, my treasure can look like I'm managing my finances well, when really where my heart is at is in gaining or earning the influence from having my finances where they need to be. Listen, I know you're going, whoa, 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 that's like, listen, listen, our sin is like, right? It's just twisted and deep and rooted in there, and it might look really good and now all of you are going to be looking at Matt like in his finances and be like, oh, I know why he's doing that. So, <sighs> Two extremes. Hoarding. Hoarding says, we fear not having sufficient funds at some point in the future. Hoarding, to quote Mathis here, hoarding betrays our unbelief in the provision of our Heavenly Father and His promise to, quote, supply every need of ours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Hoarding says we don't believe that God will provide. <clears throat> On the other side, giving it away says, giving it away says it's an opportunity to show and reinforce the place of faith in our hearts. I guess it's not really an extreme. It's really the place where we should be, which is the other extreme. It's a chance to love your neighbor and look out for the interests of others. Let me quote, Generosity is an occasion to look past the small joys of self-oriented spending and pursue the greater pleasures of spending on others. How we use money reveals our hearts. Number three, the look of generosity varies from person to person. Mathis talks about this a little bit differently. He says that like the sacrifice, like the sacrificial living is going to look different from person to person. This is where, listen, church, this is where we have to be so careful that we're not passing judgment on other people. Well, well, they drive this kind of car, and so that must mean they've got 
this kind of money, and they're not being generous, or they've got this size of TV. Somebody's not being generous with their funds. Listen, that, those things are not necessarily indicative of generosity or the, the lack thereof. It could be, but it doesn't necessarily. And just because someone lives in poverty with a super tight budget and won't spend money on anything doesn't mean that they're living sacrificially either. Okay? The look of generosity will vary from person to person. We have to be really careful. Listen, the extremes, the stingy hoarder and the generous giver. For most of us, though, we don't fall into one extreme or the other. We're somewhere in the middle. Most of us spend the, the most of our money or God's money to meet our own needs and the needs of our families. I mean, I don't know about your budget, but majority of my budget goes for that. I get $50 a month to spend on whatever I want to. 50 bucks, that's, that's my like petty cash. The rest of it, well, Sarah gets the same thing. And then the rest of it goes to pay for needs. But here's the question, how much is enough for our needs? Or what are our needs? How do we define needs? Let me quote, when it comes to finances, we all do well to be critical of ourselves rather than others, and to remind ourselves how prone we are to be easy on ourselves and hard on others. So is it simply, when we talk about needs, is it simply food, clothing, shelter, and all of that in meager proportions? Is that what we're called to? Is that how we define need? Where is the line between righteous and unrighteous spending on ourselves? Are there any standards to help us know how much to keep and how much to let go to others in generosity? So let's do this. Let's create, I want to help us with some helpful categories, like some helpful points. Because where you draw this line, again, is going to look different from this family to this family to this family to this person to this person. First of all, what, what does it look like to live a life fully lived? Like the goal is not bread and crumbs and milk necessarily, although if someone's living on bread, crumbs, and milk, doesn't necessarily mean it's bad or that they're not being blessed by God, or that they're living in sinful poverty. It doesn't mean a thing in that sense. But is that necessarily the goal? <clears throat> Quote, God made us for rhythms and cadences, for feasting and fasting, for noise and crowds and silence and solitude. However, God did not make us for our pleasure to be found in making ourselves the center of of our financial universe, or even making our family the center of our financial universe. So that's where we start getting into this, am I taking care of a need? And, and, and listen, pleasure beyond you, we're not saying that that's wrong. I mean, like, do, do we need TV? Does anybody here need TV? I mean, there, I can imagine there might be an example of that. We probably don't. So does that mean we should get rid of it? I mean, I hope not. I want to watch football. I mean, man, the Bengals beat the Cowboys. Man, it's fantastic. I didn't know they could win a game. Like, I, like does that mean that we get rid of these things? It, what, what's this need look like? The principle is this. You and I are not meant to be at the center of our financial universe. God is. 
But how often do we spend money as it relates to us? Is this going to make me happy or not? Now, it might be, I'm going to spend this money to make my child happy, but what is that ultimately about, maybe? Is it ultimately about making you happy? So are you spending money to make yourself happy, to make yourself feel comfortable, make yourself feel powerful, make yourself, how are you, are you at the center of it? Will I like this? Does this deal make me happy? We're not meant, a life fully lived is not a life with you and I at the center, it's a life with God at the center, which means God at the center of everything, including our finances. We spend money as it relates to God. Will this bring Him honor and glory? I'm sure we could flesh that out more, but we should move on. We should also abhor, or we should abhor the prosperity gospel. The idea that God wants us to be financially prosperous always. That if we say the right words that God will move, that the, and the way that creeps into a church like ours is, I have money left over at the end of the month, therefore I must have spent my money well this month. Like I honored God this month with my money. Maybe. Or maybe you just didn't indulge yourself as much as you typically do. The question is, were you generous this past month? Because maybe you shouldn't have had any leftover because you gave it away. Now, listen, I'm not, we're not saying that you shouldn't save money. And obviously, there's scriptures on that, that we should be stewards and prepare for seasons of drought and famine and so on and so forth. But we don't do that to the expense of being generous. Next, we should abhor, and this is really helpful, this is where the rubber is going to hit some of the road here. We should abhor the stinginess masquerading as Christian stewardship. We should abhor that as well. I think, honestly, if, if, if there's a place where a lot of us are going to struggle, it's going to be here. Not, not everyone, but I think this is a big place for us where we potentially struggle as a church. What we would typically just call good stewardship. If you remember, I don't know if you've read Haggai, and you should read Haggai chapter 1. The Israelites, after returning from exile, busily took care of their homes, working on their farms. But what did they do, or what did they not do? Right? They let God's house lie in ruins, right? They were tending stewarding this stuff over here, their homes, while letting God's house lie in ruins. Verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. It looks like, here's, the, here's what you got to walk, it looks like the Israelites are being good stewards, right? They have nice budgets. They know where every penny goes. They have Dave Ramsey on speed dial. They're paying down their debts, smallest ones first, of course. They're driving across town to save five pennies on the gallon. They're taking care of all their stuff. They're shopping at Save-A-Lot or Aldi's. Here's the deal. Maybe they're even giving some money to God. 
But the point is, is that they were not being generous. They were not caring for the house of God. They were not caring for the house of God. They cared about their house in priority over God's house. Here's what that says. I don't trust God to take care of me, so I will do it myself. Let me put this in maybe some common language for us today, what this would look like if it hasn't connected yet. This would be akin to this, paying your light bills, paying your mortgage, paying your heating bills, student fees, so on and so forth, maybe even giving money to the church, and not generously giving to the church and beyond. What happens in Haggai 1 here? God blows their money away. He blows it away. Their life out here looks like good stewardship, like Christian stewardship. All the while they're being stingy with their money, being greedy with their money. Here in Haggai, he blows their money away. There's nothing that says we're in a new covenant. That means God won't blow my money away because I'm under Jesus and he paid the price for my sinfulness when it comes to my money. Now he blows your money away too. Maybe you don't realize he's blown it away. It could be in the form of abnormal big expenses. It could be that he blows it away by letting you have your little indulgences here and there and those things begin to add up quickly. He could be blowing your money away by withholding promotion. It could be that he's blowing your money away by giving you more money and letting you waste it on things that move you further from his streams of grace. We're called to give ourselves away give ourselves away, to be generous and give ourselves away, trusting the Lord. And that, that doesn't mean that we're not wise. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't walk with a budget or at least care for where the pennies that God has given us goes. Yes, absolutely, we should do those things, but our calling is to give ourselves away. So yes, this generosity is going to look different from family to family, but let me quote John Piper here. Speaking to the difficulty of discerning what's too little and what's too much, he says this, the impossibility of drawing a line between night and day doesn't mean you can't know it's midnight. Number four, generosity is a means of grace. Generosity is a means of grace. Such living raises this question. Is there any reward for generosity and sacrifice? Is there any reward for generosity and sacrifice? Now, we have to be careful because, I mean, God motivates us in different ways. 2 Corinthians 9.11, he says this, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. What's he say? A heart with thanksgiving to God is a blessed place to be. That is a blessed place to be. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, just a few verses before that. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. What's he saying? There's blessing when we sow bountifully. 
you get more in return by sowing bountifully in generosity than you do by stacking it all away for a rainy day or by spending it all on the indulgences of today. So again, the question is, what's getting your bountiful sowing? I mean, think about this practically. Let's go back to the church thing and sowing bountifully here. If you sow bountifully here, you will reap bountifully here. Again, I imagine if your money is here, your heart is here. Sounds like someone, I, someone we quoted earlier. And if your heart is here, listen, practice. I mean, think about this as we talk about spending our resources towards moving ourselves closer to God's streams of grace. If your heart is here, your money is here, then your heart is here. And if your heart is here, what will you do? You'll squeeze this place for every ounce you can get from it. That's what your heart does when it's in a place. It goes, this is good. This is good for me. This is, this is what I need. Where your money is, there your heart is. You'll cherish real community with the saints. You'll seek after it. Now, is it true that you could give 20% and still have a heart that's far from this place? Yeah, because probably something else is going on. But the general principle here is still true. So I hope you can see God's grace is all over this money thing. But the thing that you cannot miss is the most important principle here in number five, and that is God is the most cheerful giver. God is the most cheerful giver. If you are greedy with God's money, if you have been greedy with God's money, let me, let me rephrase this again. If you realize the extent to which you have been greedy with God's money, repent and believe that God has not been greedy with you. God has not been greedy with you. Why would you be greedy with his resources? In the end, listen to me, as cheerfully as you may give, if you're giving away, I don't know if you know this, but there are people who give away 50, 60, 70, 80% of their income. That's not, I mean, it's an abnormal thing, but it's not an unheard of reality. And as cheerfully as you may give, you and I cannot outgive and will never be more cheerful in our giving than God Himself. You cannot outgive God. Right? Willingly, he gave what? His own son. God didn't just give his 10%. God didn't just give a portion. God gave it all. He gave his only begotten son. He gave the heir to his throne. And he gave it, listen to this, Just notice the distinction. He gave it not to a church where it should be used for good, but to men who would abuse him and murder him. And then God himself would take his death and use it for the good of his church. You and I cannot outgive God. And we cannot be more cheerful than God in our giving. 
And listen, you can give generously when you believe that God's gift is enough for you. When you believe that he has been generous with you and it's sufficient for you, then you will begin to let go. You won't have to spend all this money on the things to make you feel good and whole because you will have it all. Not only was the Father a cheerful giver, but Jesus was willing from the heart. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself, offered Himself, yes, did the Father decree this, yes, did God is sovereign over this, yes, but Jesus offered Himself without blemish to God, He says, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He offered himself. Jesus gave himself for us. And when you believed that God has cheerfully sacrificed his son for your sins to glorify himself and make you his treasure, you'll be free to give generously. You'll be free to give generously. Last thought. God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because it mirrors and demonstrates his own glory and the cheerfulness in his giving of the gospel. That's why he loves a cheerful giver. Not because you're just doing it with a good heart. Because it shows a heart that's been set free from greed by the power of the gospel a heart that has been enthralled by the cheerful giving of the Father in Jesus Christ for the blood payment of our sins. Every gift we give in Christ, meaning every gift we give in cheerful generosity, is simply an echo of what we have already received and the immeasurable riches that are still awaiting us. One who is cheerful because he or she has received the gift of the gospel will be a cheerful giver of all that he or she has. 2 Corinthians 9.10 He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that The word today has been encouraging to your people. I pray that it's been convicting, but that our hearts, because of your gracious work, would not, I pray that we would not try to justify things in our lives, that we would not try to draw fine lines so as to make ourselves feel good, or that we would not have this lawyer come out inside of us, but that we would go, Father, how might I walk in obedience? How might I be a cheerful giver? How might I be compelled towards generosity? Father, may you turn our hearts towards the gospel, that we would see it as the compelling act to move us towards generosity that we'd be generous with our resources, certainly towards this church, 
certainly towards our leaders. But Father, also, that you would move our hearts outward, that we would move even beyond that in our generosity. That we'd be generous with our neighbors, with the lost people that we work with. All because we have everything we need. We don't have to live at the center of our financial universe. You're worthy of that spot. We are the benefactors or the the receivers of the immeasurable riches of your grace. And more await us. May we store up our treasures there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.